Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 22nd, 2019. On this episode, we recorded a live P.O. Sox at our meetup event at Alter Brewery in Downers Grove. It was a great time, and it was so wonderful meeting so many Sox machinists who asked great questions. So you'll definitely want to listen to the entire episode and check out the live P.O. Sox in front of the live audience. It was a great time. Plus, our best friend of the show, Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs, joins us to talk about the White Sox core. What are his thoughts about the White Sox current rebuilding efforts and which players will Zips project good things for in 2020 and 2021? Plus, he'll play buy, sell, or hold. But first, we recap the weekend series in St. Petersburg, Florida, as the Chicago White Sox pulled off a surprise series win. But they ended their 10-game road trip 2-8, and eight, and they are now 44-52 and 52 on the season. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Well, the White Sox not only beat Tampa once, but they beat them twice to win the series thanks to some really good pitching from Ronaldo Lopez and Lucas Giolito. Yeah, especially when you look at how they started the road trip, you know, getting swept in Oakland, getting swept in Kansas City to, well, Oakland's uh, potential contender, the Royals are not. I mean, no matter the quality of opposition, the White Sox just looked overmatched. So to go to Tropicana Field against a team that they raise are 
having a little bit of a tough time, and especially with the doubleheader, I thought maybe they had a little bit better odds than usual, but given how they poorly they played against the Royals, you never know. But, yeah, the pitching helped, and I think it shows just, I guess, the the upside of what the White Sox have in front of them and also the challenges just based on the, how uneven their rotation is. Yeah, Lopez got a lot more run support than Giolito. Lopez got nine runs of support, but it's nice to see Lopez pitch well, after the All-Star break, that's two good starts in a row from Oakland and Tampa. We'll discuss Lopez a little bit more later in the show with Dan Zaborski. And with Lucas Giolito, I mean, he gave up that home run to Avisil Garcia, but James McCann was able to tie it in the ninth, and then Yohan Makata in the 12th scored all the way from first base on one of the weakest ground balls hit for a single by Jose Abreu. But it beat the shift, and it was a hit and run. And it ended up working, and the White Sox came back and won the second game. The third game, they ended up losing 4-2, to and it was Dylan Cease's third start. And the highlight from this start is that he gave up a grand slam in the second inning, which was enough offense for the Rays as the 2018 Cy Young Award winner Blake Snell was very good. But other than the second inning, Cease, I thought, pitched well. But his final numbers from the afternoon were five innings pitched, three hits allowed, four earned runs, four walks, and four strikeouts. After three starts, Cease has an ERA of 6.19, which isn't good, but it's only three starts. And in 16 innings, he's got 17 strikeouts to nine walks. Jim, I I think Cease is getting caught having one bad inning in each of his starts so far. That's throwing these numbers off. What are your thoughts about Cease's first three starts? Yep, it, it's really the one bad inning, and unfortunately this time there's a little bit of a rope-a-dope because his first two starts, his first inning was the roughest, and so this time around he throws a scoreless first and 20 pitches, which isn't great, but better than he had his first uh, couple times out and also like his, his last number of starts in Charlotte, but also had first inning problems. So he gets through the first and you feel great. And then the second inning comes, he walks the first batter on four pitches, uh, gives up single, gives up another walk, and then the grand slam, and and. That's really the biggest problem with Cease right now is just he has this uh, issue of his mechanics getting out of whack and can't locate the fastball. In this case, he was basically letting all his fastballs go high. And as a result, the Rays were able to lay off it. And curious thing there was that they, you know, we saw him struggle against the Royals. He gave up uh, all his hits on his fastball like they were just feasting on the fastball and uh, just uh, knocking him out of the park or knocking him around the park at any rate. In this start, uh, the Rays eliminated his fastball, especially the second inning when they saw that he was releasing it high and you know, walked the first batter in four pitches all in fastballs. Uh, Cease tried to go back with sliders and tried to uh, you know, use that as the strike-grabbing pitch, and the single that Avi Garcia hit in between the walks was on a slider, and then the grand slam that Travis Darno on was on was a slider. So uh, it seems like you know Cease probably can't get away with sliders in the strike zone as much maybe it's one thing he's learning is that uh you know his breaking pitches do get hit uh more often and and maybe uh with a little bit more uh, with better contact in the majors and i think it's also just a matter of uh you know the effectiveness of uh having two pitches at all times uh, i you know maybe in the minors he'd get by with one pitch working for him but i think when you see that he's uh, only in the zone with one pitch i think that uh, the hitters are pretty good at figuring that out and eliminating things and just waiting for whatever he can throw in the zone until he shows otherwise so i, I think that's really the biggest thing with cease going forward uh, for his next start is 
you know, not falling to the inning from hell, no matter what inning it is. And also just being able to throw two pitches for strikes at all times. I think uh, that's what I would like to see from him uh, his next time out. His next time out is going to be a tough start. Right now, he's the probable starter for the Saturday home game against the Minnesota Twins. So a bad inning against the Twins could be six or seven runs easily. However, the Twins are starting to fade a little bit because of injuries and regressing a bit. So hopefully Dylan Cease can avoid the big inning and have a more complete start. But for those that are concerned after his three starts, again, I think it's just one bad inning in each of the starts, and he's fine. The stuff looks very good, at times unhittable. There's a lot to take away from his first three starts that I think are positive. This is a situation with the White Sox right now. I would not be overly concerned. Dylan Cease will figure it out with more experience. And especially when you see um, what, the, what the other starters are doing, Ivan Nova and <laughs> Dylan Coven, Ross Detweiler, that makes it very easy to be patient with uh, Dylan Cease. Right. Uh, Also a good afternoon for the White Sox. Harold Baines was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, This was a common critique online, especially on Twitter, where people were saying it doesn't make sense to be playing baseball games during the Hall of Fame inductions. And it's something I really didn't think about until we were at the Sox Machine meetup. And when you're at a place that doesn't have MLB Network and you're watching off an iPad while the White Sox game is going on, I wonder if that's a good point, Jim, where maybe Major League Baseball shouldn't be playing games during the Hall of Fame inductions, or maybe they schedule the Hall of Fame inductions at some other time. Yeah, uh, it's it's a hard balance to strike just because yeah, one thing I thought of was the All-Star break, um, somehow incorporating it into the All-Star break. And problem is you give a weekend of revenue if you try to uh, schedule a game around it, and if you want fans to come to Cooperstown and be able to celebrate it. You want it on a weekend there too. So I think with summer weekends being the case, it's really hard to, uh, I guess, serve both masters, uh, having uh, Cooperstown get its peak uh, tourism and then having uh, all MLB teams get all their weekend revenue. So yeah, I've thought about it too, because I know it's come up before. And, you know, Cooperstown being as small as it is, you can't really do an evening thing successfully there. You're just a small village in the middle of the state. And, um, you know, if weather's not great, it's not the easiest thing to get in and out of. So it's it's hard to imagine unless, you know, you maybe somehow schedule it later in the year. But I think summer with family vacations and such, it's a big part of the Cooper, Cooperstown tourism. So yeah, I've been figuring out a way to balance it to where you can – Uh, somehow avoid it without um, somebody giving up money. You paid more attention to his speech than I did. Uh, Any key takeaways from what Harold Bain said about his career? And I know his family meant a lot to him. Yeah, I I think uh, he passed the over. I set the over under mentally about seven minutes. He went nine minutes and 35 seconds. And uh, he did a good job. Like I thought he would have cried earlier. Just when he saw him talking about his family and his father, in uh, previous interviews, that seemed to be what really touched him and, um, you know, what actually caused the most genuine emotion for a guy who really doesn't show much genuine emotion. Uh, in this case, I think he organized his speech to where he talked about his career first and the professional aspects. And, you know, he thanked uh, Herm Schneider and uh, Tony LaRussa and, and, you know, just his teammates and his you know, managers. And, and that's, you know, very professional of him. And, uh, didn't really move him too much. But then when we talk about his family, I think it's around minute seven, uh, seven and a half. That's when the tears started to come talking about his wife, 
talking about his father. And you know, given how uncomfortable he looked, and I watched his, his special Chuck Garfine, and he looked like he had to be tied to the stool to be able to sit there with Chuck Garfine. Uh, you know, he was kind of rocking back and forth, and he, he could see almost clicking his brain, trying to remind himself that he had to give more than three-word answers. Like he would give the short answer, and then there'd be a pause, and then he would, you know, talk more. Maybe Garfine would, you know, fill in a sentence for him, that, and then that remind him to talk more. So this really wasn't his wheelhouse. So considering how uncomfortable he is talking about himself and. Uh, talking about his career and process, I thought it was a very, um, you know, professional effort. It, it's not. I don't think it would rank up there with like Frank Thomas's, as far as like genuine uh, overflow of emotion and just you know memorable you know speech full of impact throughout. But I think you know for the man, it was very fitting and uh, you know as thorough as you're going to get. Yeah, hopefully the next White Sox player to be inducted is Minnie Minoso. It's way overdue. And who knows, maybe Hawk Harrelson as well can make it into the Hall of Fame. Outside of those two, I think it's going to be a while. And we'll see what Mark Burley's case is with the voters and how they decide. But with Harold Baines being inducted, uh, it could still be a little longer to see the next White Sox player make their way into Cooperstown after a, a pretty good run for the White Sox here with Frank Thomas and Harold Baines. So congratulations. And Tim Raines. And Tim Raines. Yep. Yeah, even though he didn't wasn't wearing a Sox cap, but he was, you know, he played a big part, but yeah, although, you know, Harold Baines's induction caught everybody by surprise. So maybe there is a way for Jerry Reinsdorf to strong arm some people into getting Paul Konerko or <laughs> Mark Burley into it. Mark Burley's got a stronger case than Paul Konerko in my opinion. Yeah, Burley's got yeah, the thing I I would say about Burley is that you could really easily fill out a plaque for him. Yes, you can. Perfect game, no hitter, 14 straight seasons with 200 innings or more, World Series champion. Yeah, quick pace, uh, you know, fan to all media for how fast he worked. I think Mark Burley's got a stronger case than Paul Konerko. So if I were a betting man, I'd say Minnie Minoso eventually gets in and it'll be a little heartbreaking because obviously he's not here to enjoy it. Uh, but if we're talking about living players, I'd say Mark Burley. It would be next or the best opportunity for the White Sox to have a Hall of Fame player until Chris Sale hangs it up. Right. I think Chris Sale's on a Hall of Fame track and uh, I'm sure he's not wearing a White Sox cap, though, yeah. <laughs> because of the Hall of Fame. But I, I would be looking forward to his speech just to see how he how he chooses words. True. Because the White Sox did a lot for him and they also uh, <laughs> they also had their points of contention, to, to put it mildly. Yes. Yes, they did. So we still have a lot of show left, so we'll keep on moving into previewing the next series for the White Sox as they come home from their 10-game road trip. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. Baseball season is well underway, and there's no better place to get your tickets than on SeatGeek. SeatGeek works by pulling millions of tickets into one place. You can easily find the seats you want for a price you are willing to pay, and there's nothing quite like being there in person and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value as the White Sox have a nice little homestand to end the month of July. And uh, if you're visiting Guarantee Ray Field and you want to know what baseball fans think of the stadium as far as their favorite food options or maybe some hacks uh, as far as ballpark hacks at Guaranteed Rate Field, Seeky collected all these fan surveys about all 30 teams in their stadiums. You can check them out at Seeky 
SeatGeek.com slash Stadium Guides. Again, that is SeatGeek.com slash Stadium Guides. And SeatGeek has some great deals going on, especially for the next three games against the Miami Marlins. And if you want to save some money on your ticket purchase, you can save $10 off your first purchase by using our promo code Socks Machine. That's promo code Socks Machine for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. And again, the White Sox do come home to face the Miami Marlins, and you would think that this may be an easy break from their 10-game road trip. That might not necessarily be the case. The Marlins are 36-61 and 61 on the year. They're 21 and a half games back of first place, dead last in the National League East. In their last 10 games, they're 3-7. and seven. But one of the things that the Marlins have been doing fairly well is starting pitching. The White Sox will face two of their better starters in this series. As all games are at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, on Monday, it is Trevor Richards for the Marlins against Yvonne Nova, the White Sox. Tuesday, one of the better starting pitchers for them, Caleb Smith, has been throwing the ball really well for Miami lately. And he's going to go up against Dylan Covey. And on Wednesday, it is Zach Gallen for the Marlins against Ronaldo Lopez. As I mentioned, Richards and Smith have been pitching really well, so they could help limit the White Sox offense, and maybe the White Sox offense will have to take advantage of the Marlins' bullpen late. But one of the things that surprised me a little bit, Jim, is that Dylan Covey is getting another chance to start after his bomb experience uh, in Oakland as he couldn't get out of the first inning. Are you surprised? Not really, because it's Dylan Covey, and I guess he'll just always be around until the White Sox really make a well yeah i'm hoping uh, michael kopech coming back dane dunning and then carlos john the second half and hopefully a free agent starting pitcher three hopefully that is the yeah, i guess the bunch of moves that allows the white Sox to move on from kobe but uh yeah i i think at this point detweiler and kobe are kind of the same guy in terms of trying to figure out who's the better bet to give them you know more than three innings and it's probably probably they just look at like rest between the two of them um you know who's got more in the tank who's got uh you know a better potential matchup when looking at the lineups and so i think it's kind of flip a coin between the two and and neither of them are great options or even good or bad okay or even kind of bad options in some cases especially the way kobe went out like he's not that was worse than bad so uh well i guess we'll see him put to the test the idea that he was too uh amped up to face his former team you know with kobe and his his inconsistent track record especially with the health issues you know just hard to tell what his actual baseline is right now what else are you looking forward to seeing in these three games against the marlins well, I guess like learning about the Marlins a little bit because they're I think they're the most anonymous team to me. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm going to be. I agree. I agree. Like it requires a good 20 minutes of just research on fan graphs on who the Marlins are and who's even on this 25 man roster. Yeah, And who got to there by trades versus who was homegrown and picked and such because they've they've overhauled their roster a lot with the you know, the the Stanton trade and the. Uh, uh, Real Muto trade and, and everything like that. So it's hard to keep track of how these players got there. And I'll, I'll be reading uh, Patrick's preview with great interest. But uh, it's, you know, the, the Marlins are pretty uneven. Um, their offense has been dragging basically the team down from the start. And the pitching's come around and made them respectable before they were on a disastrous pace. But I think now they're just an ordinary, bad rebuilding team. So. Runs are going to be hard to come by, but this would be the case for like a Von Nova to step up and especially with the trade deadline approaching. Not that I expect to have see him have many takers, but given that uh, he's had interest before and he at least throws strikes, uh, 
you never know, you know, like whether it happens, but I just don't see a taker there. And I don't see the White Sox, uh, you know, the White Sox need him because who else is going to be starting? That might be the case where necessity wins out over, uh, you know, getting some random rookie baller who's 25 years old. But, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, this would be a good time for the guys who are scuffling to get on track and for, uh, Lopez to keep up his hot start. To the second half. Yeah, as you mentioned, selling and that idea. We're going to be playing buy, seller, hold next with Dan Zaborski. But on Twitter, week six of playing this game, 436 votes. 60% of the fans say the White Sox should sell. 34% say they should hold. And 6%, I think, are just trying to poison the survey and say that the White (laughs) Sox will buy. Jim and I will give our reasons on what the White Sox should do prior to the trade deadline later in P.O. Sox in our live edition from Alter Brewery from our awesome Sox Machine meetup uh, that you guys will be able to listen to later in the show. But as I already mentioned, Dan Zaborski is coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast. We'll recap the White Sox Marlins series Wednesday night on Sox Machine Live. But Dan will now share with us uh, his thoughts on how well the White Sox core is performing and what Zips thinks could happen in the near future. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. While the Chicago White Sox are having a bad 10-game road trip to start the post-All-Star break, there has been some significant progress by the White Sox core after 90-plus games in 2019, where we do see a core of players being built. Yohan Makata's having a terrific season. Tim Anderson was on his way to having his best season before getting hurt. Lucas Giolito has been the league's most improved player, and Eloy Jimenez was figuring out at the plate before he got hurt in the field again. We still have a ways to go in this season, but looking ahead, has there been enough progress to suggest that in 2020, the White Sox are ready to flip the switch and start contending? For that answer, we need to look at the projections. The best man for that job is our best friend of the podcast from Fangraphs.com. It's Dan Zaborski. And hello, Dan. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Josh. It's always fun. Before we get into White Sox talk, how was the Fangraphs meetup in Cleveland during the All-Star break? Oh, it was a lot of fun. It's always it's always a it's blast doing those kinds of events with the public and you know readers and stuff. I drank a little too much because I was kind of hungover all day Sunday. Uh, 
I actually missed the last bit of the Futures game because there was going to be fireworks and my head was exploding and I did not want to hear fireworks. <laughs> uh, but it was a fun time. Are there any plans for a Chicago meetup? I don't know. I don't. I don't make those plans. I think it it, it comes down to where like events are, and so I'm not really sure what the next event will be. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd be down for Chicago one. It's not really that far. I don't have to fly, and anything. Anytime I don't have to fly, that's always a big plus. Now I think the next All Star Game is in Los Angeles, if I'm correct. I, I have no idea. Yeah. Isn't that helpful? No idea. No idea. I think it's in Los Angeles. I think the Dodgers are hosting it. And then yeah, I know Sabre that... next year is in Baltimore, but I don't know where the next All-Star game is. Oh, that's cool that Sabre's in Baltimore. Yeah. Very We'll exciting. show people how to crab. <laughs> there you go, properly. Because you see, every Mariner knows how to do it. You rent, a, uh, you rent a small boat, you get chicken necks, you fill up the baskets, you have like three cases of crappy beer – and you go out there for the day, you come back covered with chigger bites and hopefully some crabs. That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that, those are two events to look forward to. For those that are into Sabre and into Sabre metrics, uh, the Sabre convention, it's always a big deal. In Baltimore next year, very, very exciting. And hopefully Fangraphs has a meetup in Chicago because that would be an awesome event to attend to. But as we record this, the White Sox lost seven straight games. So this is prior to the series in St. Petersburg, Florida, as they face the Tampa Bay Rays. Now, prior to the All-Star break, the White Sox were just two games below 500. Dan. From a whole team perspective, what do you think of the current state of the Chicago White Sox? I think they're kind of like the Padres, like a year behind. Uh, I think this year probably wasn't going to be good. I think next year is going to be the interesting year, but not quite a contender. Uh, but they're at the point now where if they decide they want to spend that, there are possibilities and it isn't a terrible idea as long as you don't do the year behind thing and sign Eric Hosmer, which I would not recommend. Uh, or obviously since he's not a free agent, a Hosmer comparable. Uh, I, I mean, I think the White Sox are on track and they've had some unfortunate setbacks. Uh, you obviously would have liked Kopech and Dunning uh, and Rodon to be healthy and – now that's been, you know, giant setbacks, but it's a team that's still on the way up. Now on fan graphs, looking at it individual perspectives, Yuan McCann is already at three and a half war. And last year he was at two war. So good chance that he'll double his value in the 2019 season from last year. When I look at his three-year projection on his fan graph page, I'm not sure if this is the most up-to-date, but it looks like publicly at least Zips has him at two and a half and 2.4 war for the next two seasons in 2020 and 2021. Do you expect Zips to think differently about Mikata after what he has done in 2019? Uh, I, I think so. Uh, the in-season model is a little different. I'm just opening up the, the Mankata numbers. Uh, they've actually ticked up a little in-season uh, to 2.9, 3.0, 2.9, 2.8. That's a well above average player. I think that once I do like the full – once the season's over and you have all the park factors in and all the advanced data is in because I can't do that on a nightly basis, uh, at that point I think that that his projection would go up a bit from there. And what kind of player do you think Yohan Makata is going to be from here on out? Because I, I've been fascinated that whatever – Whatever Yohan Makata has been doing well, so is Rafael Devers. So from a Boston Red Sox perspective with the Chris Sale trade, it seems like they're not really missing Yohan Makata because Rafael Devers has been very good. 
But from a White Sox perspective, man, it appears that Yohan Mercado might be one of the best players on this roster moving forward. Yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously the Red Sox could have used him. They just have to, you know, use him differently than, than, uh, than Devers. Obviously, I think uh, if they had Mercado, they wouldn't have been so quick, you know, to call up uh, uh, Michael Chavis. Uh, you wouldn't see Brock Holt as much at second base. Um, True. I mean, he would have had a lot of value for the team. I think I would call Mankata right now as – I don't want to say like a superstar or anything, but just like regular star level, a player who does have some flaws that probably aren't going to ever completely go away. But as long as you don't focus on the flaws and what he can do well, you'll be happy. Uh, I've been I've been trying not to declare him like broken out this year because I seem to do that in May every year and then something bad happens. So I'm a little afraid now. I don't want to no, kick him. I get it. So is he, could he theoretically be someone that White Sox fans could count on to be a four war player moving forward? I think so. Awesome. I think that's a very, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'm at the part where it's like 50, 50, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's not unrealistic by any means. Now, when it comes to Lucas Giolito, do you know what percentile his current season falls within his preseason Zips projections? Uh, not offhand, but it's a very high number. Uh, I mean, the Zips liked him when he was a prospect, but, I mean, he's had a lot of just setbacks. But that changeup this year is just rocking it. It's His projection now is a lot better. Uh, but, no, this was – a very, very surprising projection for Zips, shall we say. Yeah, because I remember you saying, like, for 2017, obviously, Garcia, it was, like, 99th percentile on his performance that year. And I'm wondering if Lucas Giolito is getting close to that, to the Avi 2017. Probably. Maybe, like, a 99.99%. <laughs> That's probably an exaggeration because pictures have higher error bars naturally. But it, it was unexpected, and it's good to see. It's also why you never give up on a prospect when you're a team in the position that the White Sox are. Now, I'm glad you brought that point up because I do have a concern about the next guy, and that's Ronaldo Lopez. He's having an opposite year from Lucas Giolito, and this is where I'm concerned. When we are looking at XFIP, over the years since he's joined the White Sox, in 2017, his XFIP was 5.75. Last year, in which I thought Lopez had a good season because he had a below 4 ERA, his XFIP was 5.22. This year, we know he's not having a good season, and lo and behold, his XFIP is 5.58. Lopez was good in his last start in Oakland, and again, we're recording this prior to his next start in Tampa, so maybe he throws a perfect game or something. But the reason I'm concerned, Dan, is that the stat cast metrics on Lopez's pitches are also bad. He's in the seventh percentile for curved spin rate. Even though the fastball velocity is really good, he gets no spin on that pitch. So it's a very flat pitch. I wonder, even with pitchers finding a way to have good days here and there, do you think Lopez has the makings to be a good starting pitcher? I'm not sure if I'd say even a good starting pitcher at this point. I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, he could dial it back to 95, 96. Uh, I just don't think his stuff, is, as you said, it's very flat. It doesn't really fool batters as much as it should. Uh, you're looking at a guy that last year, I mean, his his fa- his average fastball was, I think, 95, 96, somewhere in, in that period, in that area. And he still only struck out seven batters a game. Uh, and that's kind of like the whole Nate Yavaldi thing where the stuff doesn't really match or the velocity doesn't really match the, uh, the strikeout rate. I... I think that Exit was telling a good story here because he's a guy who probably should have allowed more home runs than he was. 
and that kind of thing is hard to maintain long term to exceed that. As far as expectations with Lopez, is it better? Suited? I'm cautiously pessimistic. Cautiously pessimistic. It, I mean, the the, the team's re- rotation isn't so deep that you have someone to obviously replace him, and I think you still keep trying to make a picture out of him because Giolito had pretty long odds too, it seemed. Uh, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't expect too much. Yeah, Giolito though went through some drastic changes. Yeah, in the way is, that he throws the baseball. Yeah, and he always had talent. Uh, probably was always a better prospect than uh, Lopez ever was. Uh, I don't think anyone would completely argue about that. Hopefully, mm-hmm. I don't know. Would you? Would you argue with that? Do you think? Or no? I, I think Lopez has to make some pretty drastic changes this off season. Maybe work with a pitch consultant to have new pitch grips so he can get some more spin and his pitches aren't so flat. But at this stage, I just wonder: is he a number four, or number five quality starting pitcher? And even with the fastball velocity, at what point do you even suggest the idea of, well, let's throw him in the bullpen, see if he can last an inning or two. And maybe that 96-mile-per-hour fastball could be 98-99 if you just use him for an inning. I, I, I think he's not at the point where you say you have to throw him into the, uh, uh, into the, into the bullpen at this point. I don't think we're okay. at that point. I think you still want to try him until you just give up. Uh, unless the White Sox are all of a sudden like, you know, a game out of the wild card, and then your your whole way you approach the risk is different. Uh, the White Sox, in the position they are, they're not a contender now. Uh, I, I hope no one would argue with that at this moment. Uh, maybe someone will, but they're not a contender right now. And so the way they should approach risk is risk is their friend. Rich is the friend. Risk is the friend of the rebuilding team, the enemy of the contender. Uh, they need to absorb that risk to embrace that risk and give them as many opportunities as they can to succeed uh, in their rotation. And only when they have – when they're you know at their wit's end, then you start to say, OK, maybe it's too late. Maybe he has to be in the bullpen. OK. I think that's a very good – I think that's a very good and very fair point. So that's Lopez and the pitching staff. For White Sox fans, ever since he ran into Charlie Tilson in the outfield – there are White Sox fans that do not want Aloy Jimenez to return to left field. They want him to be a full-time DH for the rest of his career, partly because he keeps getting hurt when he's playing defense. The other part is that he's also terrible defensively. Jimenez is at negative 10 defensive runs saved. I didn't even know it went that low or that bad for outfielders, <laughs> but that's where he currently is. Well, there's Matt Kemp. There's, remember, there's oh, yes, always, there's Matt, always Kemp. Matt Kemp. Yeah, how can I forget? But... Uh, you know, we, he's got such a tremendous bat like Matt Kemp at times. Uh, and like I said, you know, White Sox fans, there are some on Twitter that want the team to make Jimenez a full-time DH. Do you think that is a good idea to protect Jimenez's future value? I think I'd give it a little more time. Uh, I'm, I'm probably given his performance. I'm probably near the end there. Uh, but at this point, it's not really costing the White Sox meaningful games. And if he can adjust in the outfield. And sometimes they do. Kyle Schwarber improved in the outfield tremendously with some work. Uh, Jimenez has had some injuries, which also probably affect his ability to learn uh, on, on the job. I'd like to see him, you know, have a, you know, a winter, a spring. And then if he still has problems, then you say, okay, maybe he's at the age, but I think that's a last resort. Uh, and for similar reasons as Lopez, I don't want to just give up on him that yet. Uh, I'm not convinced that it's going to be a, a uh, constant injury thing. I don't think he's Eric Davis at this point. Um, again, uh, like Lopez, a lot of it's wait and see just because of the position the White Sox are in. Now, do you think his defense 
value as far as his performance will impact on how Zips projects his war moving forward? Well, 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 definitely, because it's going to assume that he isn't left for at least the, the, the present time uh, where he's, he's not good. I mean, there's no getting around that. But I, I think it's you can not you don't have to worry so much about what the projections say in a case like Jimenez. Uh, if he's if he's if he's another negative five runs until between now and the end of the year. I mean, what does it really hurt? You might find out something useful and you're not really costing any right. pennant runs, essentially. Right. So that's somebody on the defensive spectrum that is pretty clear that he's not very good. The next player, as far as the individual I want to take a look at, is Tim Anderson. Now, prior to him going on the injured list back on June 28th, Anderson ranked 15th in Major League Baseball for shortstops in war. He was 6th, though, and weighted runs created plus. He was actually tied with Manny Machado before going on the injured list. And slightly ahead of Javier Baez but he ranks 24th in defensive metrics on fan graphs, uh, which is very close to the bottom. So in order for Anderson to provide as much positive value, he needs to hit, it seems. Do you have confidence that Anderson could be a better-than-average shortstop for the White Sox as he he enters his age 27 season in his prime year starting in 2020, Dan? Uh, I'm a little worried. I mean, he's he's been a little more error-prone than he's been in the past. And obviously, fielding percentage isn't generally a big deal because there's that's just a subset of pitches but he's been at the bottom uh of of the fielding percentage for shortstops and those are those are you know five six seven extra runs a year uh a few years ago i believe he was at negative 10 or something just based on errors uh the 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 problem when you look at things like ultimate zone rating it's been the errors more than the range so to speak uh and you know you can grow out of that sometimes uh, marcus simeon uh did uh, everyone remembers him when he was with the White Sox was extremely error prone. He continued that with the A's, but working with Ron Washington, he turned that around uh, a bit. Uh, I don't think Anderson's at the point where you say let's move him off because he's probably still the best option they have there. But you you would like him to make fewer errors there, not just the errors the stat, but errors the the mistake. Uh, he's a terrific hitter for a shortstop now. He's he's taken some steps forward. I don't think he's a 370 batting average on balls and play guy, but he might be a 330 or 340 and he'd still be having a good season with those with those numbers. I mean, he hits for more power than you would expect uh him to. Uh I I mean, I like Anderson. I I I think like Mankata, he's he's probably a little worse than Mankata, but uh he's he's a real player who contributes to, you know, a future pennant run. And I, I think he's – I mean he has a terrific contract from the point of view of Chicago at least. Mm-hmm. And he, he he pushes the team forward. I think that you have to accept that he's going to have some flaws. Yeah, and for average shortstops, I don't mean to call Tim Anderson an average shortstop as a slight. But around Major League Baseball, shortstops have been playing very well. We're looking at two-and-a-half war, maybe even close to three war this year for shortstops in the middle of the pack on according to fan graphs. It's just that that's where Tim Anderson is lumped in. He's not considered one of the best shortstops by any means in Major League Baseball. Um, But if you remember the 2017 season, Tim Anderson was one of the worst shortstops in Major League Baseball. So Anderson himself has made some great progress. Where he's at is right in the middle. So I'm wondering, do you think he can make that sub? Is his bat good enough, Dan, for Anderson to rise up maybe to the next level to becoming, uh, let's say, a top 10 shortstop in Major League Baseball. 
top 10 is really hard now because, as you say, it's a very deep position right now. Right. Uh, I think he has to make a little more progress at reducing the errors uh, to to really hit the top 10. Because when you're talking the top 10, I mean, Corey Seager's like towards the end of the top 10 at this point. Uh, you have guys like Gavin Lux coming up. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a very, very deep, talented position right now. Uh, but, I, I mean, I, I like him. I think he's a really solid player. Yeah, in the American League Century, you still have Francisco Lindor and Jorge Polanco. So that's just how deep the shortstop position is throughout Major League Baseball. Yeah, it's it's very, very deep. Uh, we're kind of spoiled by some of the young shortstops and that we have. I mean, you have Lindor, Bogarts. Carlos Correa is still only 24. It feels like he's been around for 10 years. <laughs> right? but he's, still, he's still in an age where a lot of players would be coming up from the minors. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Yes. The next thing, as we've been playing over the last five weeks, and I think that Dan is the perfect one to play this little game, it's time to play buy, sell, or hold. And I'm sure this is going to be a very easy answer when it comes to the Chicago White Sox. Again, the trade deadline is July 31st. There is no waiver trade deadline. So no team can make deals after July 31st. We expect activity to pick up maybe starting after this weekend, especially during the week as we inch closer to the trade deadline. But when it comes to the Chicago White Sox, Dan, if you were consulting with Rick Hahn and he asked you, what should we do prior to July 31st? Do you think the White Sox should buy, sell, or hold? I I still think they're sellers. I know that's not going to be a popular opinion. Uh, They're just not – there yet. Now, obviously, you don't sell everyone. They're not in a situation where they're like the Orioles, where anybody who likes anybody on the team, you get rid of them. But I do think they had to be selective, especially some of the older players. Uh, I know they won't be with the Brave, obviously, uh, but I, I do think they should be at least considering selling. Now, there are opportunities to buy if you're talking about a player who's going to be valuable in future years. Uh, for instance, let's say that the Mets were serious about making a Noah Syndergaard available and they had a package with the White Sox. At that point, you say, oh, I, well, you have to consider that. Uh, but I don't think any kind of buying should be focused on the short term. Yeah, with the Noah Syndergaard, though, I have a feeling they would ask for Michael Kopak. Yeah, although it would be – given the uncertainty of the injury and, of course, the issues of creating injured players, I don't know if I'd – I don't know if I would refuse it outright. Okay. You would as consider horrible it. horrible as it sounds. It's just, yeah, I wouldn't have considered it like, you know, straight up coming into the season just because of where the team was or before the injury, which wasn't before the season. You know what I mean? Last year. But if you could trade a guy with Tommy John surgery, I, I think that the risk is enough that you have to consider it. Looking at it. Also, in another way, seeing that this just came up out of random, and I, I kind of like this idea, that would mean if the White Sox could pull off such a deal with Michael Kopech ha- headlining a deal to get Noah Syndergaard, that the Chris Sale trade would have resulted in Yohan Mikata and Noah Syndergaard. Well, that's that's not a bad trade in the end. Uh, no, that's for, not. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do it for lesser pictures. I mean, like if the Mets were offering DeGrom, then you really especially do it. I don't think I'd have to think in that case simply because of – Oh, Jake DeGrom, I love Jake DeGrom. Uh, but, you know, obviously you don't do it for a lesser picture. You don't say – you don't go after, say, Mike Miner or something with that. That would just be crazy. Right. But Noah Syndergaard, though. Yeah, if it's a, if, it, if you can make a deal for someone who can contribute in the future and you can hopefully resign and extend, I think you have to at least consider it. You don't hang up angrily on, on GM Brofist and with the Mets. 
Who do you think is the best asset right now the White Sox could sell that another team would want? Well, if we're if we're being – are we including the guys that we wouldn't trade? Correct. Guys, well, you're not trading under the core. Okay, so I can't I can't just say Mankata. Right. Probably some of the pitching. Like is uh, Alex Colome? Is that the answer? Yeah, Alex Colome is is someone that has value, especially because I mean the Dodgers were looking at uh, Vasquez from the the Pirates, but the Pirates are going to ask a lot for him. Uh, I mean, he's the one who has the most just lure to a team that's contending, and there are a lot of contending teams with kind of crappy bullpens. Hmm. To make a very fun postseason, then. <laughs> yeah, I, it is fun. With meltdowns are fun, not for the fans, but since I'm an Orioles fan, my favorite team is not going to be in the in the playoffs. So, no, they are not. And the White Sox fans will be right there with. Oh you. no, no, no! You're not. You guys have have a lot more near term hope than the Orioles do. You can't say oh, you're right true. with the Orioles. Yes. You have to be, you know, on pace to lose 110 games or something. Okay. Yeah, no. The, it is a better situation for the White Sox at the moment. But when it comes to 2019 postseason, we'll be watching it with you as our favorite teams won't be there. You can follow Dan on Twitter. He's at DZimborski. You can always read his excellent work on Fangraphs.com and join his lively live chat every Monday uh, <laughs> afternoon starting at 11 a.m. Central Time in Chicago. Uh, 12 p.m. for those that are in the East Coast during your lunch. And Dan, as always, man, thanks for coming on the show. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. It's, it's always fun. Thanks for having me on. Now for the Minor League Report. The Charlotte Knights are 53-47 and 47 on the season, six games back of the Gwinnett Stripers, the Atlanta Braves AAA affiliate, in the International South Division. When it comes to the Knights, all eyes are on Luis Robert, who has played 10 games in AAA now, and so far he's hitting 14 for 43 with five home runs, two doubles, and a triple with 11 runs batted in and three stolen bases, which is awesome. Robert does have nine strikeouts with just one walk, which isn't that much of a concern, but if Rick Hahn is still looking for excuses to keep Robert in AAA, I guess he could point to walk rate. Walks are good, but home runs are better. Birmingham is playing much better in the second half. The Barons are 17-10, just a half game back of the Montgomery Biscuits in the division. Gavin Sheets' slash line is looking better as his season total is now 278 batting average, with a 347 on base percentage and slugging 426. You would like a little bit higher for a first baseman than 426 slugging, but he's getting there as he now has 12 home runs and 13 doubles of the season with 64 runs batted in. Blake Rutherford is inching closer to a 700 OPS as he's now at 259 batting average with a 300 on base percentage and slugging 367. He has been making great gains to get to these numbers but it's still not a pretty slash line for the season. Meanwhile, Nick Magical hit his first home run in AA, and in 33 games, the second baseman is now hitting 370 with a 437 on base percentage and slugging 488 with just 13 walks to four strikeouts.
The Winston-Salem Dash are 14 and 17 in the second half and in last place, but they are just four games back of first place. Craig Didilo now has 13 home runs this season, and as he's hitting 270 with a 336 on base percentage and slugging 476, which is an intriguing slash line from the former Indiana Hoosier. But the big storyline is also another Hoosier, this time starting pitcher Jonathan Stever. The fifth round 2018 draft pick struck out nine batters in seven scoreless innings, only allowed two hits. In six starts in high A, Stever has 45 strikeouts to just eight walks in 39 innings. He's someone to keep an eye on throughout August to see if he could emerge as a starting pitching depth as we all know the White Sox need more starting pitching. Kanapolis is 16-15 and 15 in the second half. They're five games back of first place. Andrew Vaughn has played 16 games with the Intimidators, and so far he is 16 for 57 with 13 strikeouts and 12 walks. Vaughn only has one home run so far, but he does have six doubles, so his slash line is a 281 batting average with a 425 on base, slugging 439. Down in Arizona is interesting because of the mixture of prep draft picks and international signings. Jose Rodriguez, who was signed as part of the White Sox international class last year, has six home runs in 19 games. Also someone that has caught my attention is DJ Gladney. In 27 games, Gladney is hitting 321 with a 361 on base percentage, slugging 532 with five home runs. Now, he does have 41 strikeouts to just four walks, which is a bit alarming, but he's only 17 years old. If you are looking for prospects to dream on, Rodriguez and Gladney are good choices. That's it for the Minor League Report. Coming up next is our special edition, P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where usually you would submit your questions to us via Twitter at Socks Machine or posting your questions on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Socks Machine or helping support the site and show at Patreon.com slash Socks Machine. However, this is a special P.O. Socks. This is our first time doing it live at Alter Brewery here in Downers Grove for our Socks Machine meetup. And Jim, this has been an awesome meetup. It's great to see everyone. Yeah, I'm very glad people came out. It's This is Downers Grove, my hometown. Uh, we were talking about meetups this uh, winter, this offseason, trying to figure out what to do after the White Sox struck out in the offseason. We weren't all that excited about going to a game and forming a, like, let's get out to the stadium park. But I thought we hadn't had anything in the suburbs yet, so... This might be the year to do it. This was great. This was great. So the way we'll do it here in the crowd, whoever is brave enough, there is a microphone by where we had the pizza. Just let us know who you are, your name, where you're from, and uh, ask your question. Uh, My name is Billy. I'm from Chicago. I'm a big fan. Nice to meet you both. Uh, My question, buy, sell, hold. What are we doing? What are we doing? All right. So we had Dan Zaborski on the show. And Dan, I asked him that question. He is most definitely sell. The White Sox should try to get whatever they can from Alex Colome, whatever they can get from anyone. He even brought up John Jay. Where are you now, Jim? 
I'm leaning towards that now. I think it's still mostly a hold when it comes to what they'll be able to do, but if they can trade Colome, they may as well, especially since Colome strikeouts have dried up. He hasn't really done anything when it comes to missing bats. You don't feel great about locking him in for the success he's had for next year. So if they get a great price, I wonder like how good of a price they'll get since a lot of teams seems to be uh, liquidating their bullpens, trying to figure out who to get, who to sell. So the price might not be that great, but if they can get, like you know, like we've been talking about, a top 100 prospect, right. then that's probably worth doing. Yeah, I think Shane Green has to go first, I think, for Detroit. He seems to be the target that more teams are talking about in acquiring from the Detroit Tigers before Colome gets moved. I would be surprised if Colome got moved before Green. Yeah, and then there's Will Smith, too, from the left-hand side, yeah. so and I think he'll be more than a loogie. He'll be... But what are the Giants going to do, Jim? They're two games out of the wild card. Yeah, it's weird. Like, they've been... they. I guess their situation is what I wish the White Sox were in, where they were compelling enough to be able to, like, uh, you know, like, if they if they're two games out of the wild card, they had Colome doing great, I wouldn't sell. You know, that'd be the kind of situation where... Right. May as well try, stoke the interest, even if you like fall apart in September, miss the playoffs by ten games. Keep the attendance going, keep showing the desire to win. But right now, with the way they started the second half, it's like uh, not quite the same. And this is Bruce Bochy's last season. Yeah. So if all of a sudden the team is playing well, that's one thing that opens up for the White Sox. If the Giants are out because the Giants look like they were going to sell, unload their entire bullpen. Right. And now. It's possible that the White Sox could move up a peg. A lot can happen in the next 10 days. But one player that I thought of while watching this past week, and I know it hasn't been a good week for the White Sox, I wonder if Rick Hahn can move John Jay. I think John Jay could be a good fourth outfielder for a contending team that just needs someone that can play twice a week, you know, credible defense, and is a professional bat. It feels like they would move him for somebody who never gets above A ball. You know, just like a lottery ticket who never materializes. Cody yeah, well, uh, even lower than Cody Madero because he was a former first-round pick. Sure. So he hasn't materialized. He might be, he's had a decent year in Birmingham's bullpen since shifting to full-time bullpen work. But I think it's going to be, you're going to have to aim your sights even lower for Jay because, uh, you know, he was available on the open market and he only got $4 million for the White Sox. And he hasn't proven himself to be a different guy or a better version of himself. And if it only costs cash and only got that much from the White Sox, I don't see him, you know, getting that much at the deadline. I am now in the sell category. We'll see what Rick Hahn does. But Billy, thank you so much for your question. Awesome question. Billy! Woo! Who is next? Hey, guys. Uh, Brendan from now Aurora. Uh, does Luis Robert hit uh, 35 home runs this year? Does Luis Robert hit 35 home runs? This year? Where is he at right now? Yeah, total. Um, let, me t- let me take a look. Is it 21, 22? I, I thought this was uh, without any research. <laughs> without research. Well, if he's at, let's say, without looking up, it's 21 home runs, and you still have all of August, and the season ends in early September, however the Charlotte Knights are in contention for one of the postseason. 21 homers. Is that 21 homers. Do you think he can hit 14 homers in the month of August going into the first week of September? Not quite. I can see 30. A nine-home-run month in AAA in August is going to make Rick Hahn sweat and squirm whenever yeah. anybody asks him, why is Luis Robert not in Chicago? I mean, I can see 30 – like, it's – Charlotte is so small, the AAA ball is so lively, Robert, that good, and the pitching that bad. I think a lot of, like, uh, international league teams or uh, – 
teams with international league affiliates or AAA affiliates are going the double A to majors path. They aren't really saving their best guys for it because as we've seen with Charlotte, there's just, it's a ridiculous place to play right now. So I think uh, given the league and I, it's not out of the question, 14 homers, but I think 30 would be more of a reasonable, maybe 10th percentile like outcome for him like in, in the in the uh, or I guess 90th percentile when it comes to good outcomes but yeah I would say 30 might be a reach but I could see him hitting it if Robert hit 30 home runs this season and was not called up I have to imagine Jim the Major League Baseball Players Association would make it exhibit a in their dis- negotiations with the league about service time unless Adam Engel is finally for real this time Next question. <laughs> I know on uh, the podcast this week, you guys were kind of down with a very poor start to the second half um, and kind of questioned the depth of the rebuild and everything. That was, uh, my question is, beyond the Yankees, Dodgers, Astros, what teams out there do you feel could have weathered their two best players Arguably, with Anderson and uh, Jimenez going down, what two teams could have weathered that kind of thing and not totally tanked? This is a good question. Well, I guess I would say maybe Anderson and Jimenez are, I think they're the two most interesting players and two, you know, when it comes to watching and, and keeping your interest and uh, thinking about what they're, yeah, how they're going to meet their potential, how they're going to fit in, what ultimately they can offer, and what the team can plan around them giving. I think they are the most two impactful players there. When it comes to best players, I don't know. I think Jimenez is like one. He's the whole center of the lineup looks different when Jimenez is in there versus James McCann batting fourth and then like a shrug batting fifth and, you know, Wellington Castillo or somebody like that trying to provide the power. I think Jimenez makes a difference. Anderson, I think, had kind of settled into this new level of like okayness uh june the whites you know and we've heard steve stone talk about it like how the white Sox running game has stopped because anderson's out they're only four for nine stealing bases in june like they stopped running in june before anderson got hurt so i kind of think that anderson's you know april was not quite a revelation i think it was like the hottest he's ever been hasn't quite contained it but i think he's more or less a better player than he was but still flawed all right. I think right now Mancada and Jimenez would be the number one and two. And I think if you know they lost both of those guys, you'd be in trouble. But uh, I, it makes me worry a little bit when they look at Anderson and say, like, we've lost so much. Because you look at his approach, he doesn't draw walks. So, like, the wa- White Sox walking problem isn't attributable to him being out. Uh, when it comes to defense, like, his defense has been inconsistent. He makes great plays. He makes he botches really easy plays. And so that's not really, you know, he's not a linchpin there. So it does make me, I guess I'm worried when it's treated as this catastrophic event because at least I think he's more a, I think he's a tone setter. I think he's somebody when he's going good, a lot of people can rally behind him. And I think that's important to have on the team because there aren't a whole lot of personalities like his. So I think he fits in that regard. But when it comes to like what he's been offering, it is a little bit worrisome when he's out and the team claims it's missing so much. But when you like, you look at the performance game in, game out and what he's doing, what he doesn't do, it doesn't quite add up to me. But looking at teams across the American League, though, or maybe all of Major League Baseball, like let's say Boston. If Boston lost Xander Bogarts and J.D. Martinez for two weeks, do you still think they're in the midst of a wild card hunt? 
they have the depth, but I think they are like a 500 team. Like they're kind of, I mean, they've been like a 500 team for most of the season. But I think when it comes to their projections, I think they hang around. But yeah, I think they don't find the next gear. And like, uh, even for like the Twins, though, if they yeah, lost tw- Eddie Rosario and Jorge Polanco, yeah. do you think they're still in first place? No, and, and there's, I think regression is setting in for them. I think they're a team that, that they're a better example to where they have a bunch of guys who are good above average trying to establish themselves as like permanently above average. And when like a Marwin Gonzalez gets hurt, a Byron Buxton gets hurt, they have a hard, little hard time making it up. So I think that's the case where the White Sox, I think the problem with the White Sox is that they're so bottom heavy. They have like a lot of below uh, replacement level guys. Like when when <laughs> when uh, like when Anderson's out, Jose Rondon has stepped, and that's a huge like Anderson's a drop. Anderson's absence is felt because Jose Rondon is so below average. Well, so, Cleveland had this drop when they didn't have Lindor, and then they lost Kluber. I mean, Cleveland was messing around with the White Sox in the standings. So I I, yeah. I, I understand the question, and yeah. I, this is a good question. Like. Yes, the White Sox were 2-8 and eight during this 10-game road trip. They lost Anderson and Jimenez. Which teams in the American League, though, can survive that? And that is a good point to bring up, like, the Yankees, because the Yankees have a mess of injuries, and they yeah. still have the best record in the American League. Yeah, I think what the, you talk about replacements, the A's are a team that's great at finding replacements, that's great true. at scrambling. The Rays are great at making things up as they go along. Starting Avi in center field, can you imagine the White Sox starting? Yeah, like, yeah. So it's like, I mean, they, they just get a lineup out there. They don't think too much of it. I think, you know, that's one of my long-running complaints with the White Sox is when they do something mildly off-kilter, like, you know, bat Jose Abreu second, it's like, oh, my God, Abreu's batting second. What are they, you know, how is he going to respond? And I would like the White Sox to get weird enough to where if they, you know, play a weird center field, like play Yohan Mankata in center field. Yeah, let's, just for a game, just, you know, like, what the hell? Let's just... Yeah, and it's uh, just, I think that's more of a case where the White Sox will be better off just proving they can get weird, not that they do it and mess people up, and just show that nothing is that big of a deal, whether they lose their leadoff man or whether they lose their starting shortstop. I think it would be great to see them be flexible enough and be deep enough to where they can make up uh, responses on the fly. So I think I would say there may be, you know, you mentioned the A's and the Red Sox and the Yankees are deep enough. And the, and the Yankees are another team that's had to scramble. They lost Stanton. They lost Judge for a bit. They've, you know, they've had to scramble and they've been fine. I think it speaks to the lack of the White Sox depth that losing a guy like Anderson, who's good but not, uh, you know, has his flaws that certainly hold the team back in certain ways. I think that's the case where they need to get deeper. They need to find more plan Bs because, as we saw, like, same thing with Carlos Rodon. You know, if you're banking on him throwing more than 130 innings in the year, you'd be in trouble. So I think, you know, having going from Rodon to, oh, my God, Dylan Covey, then Ross Detweiler, and then Dylan Covey, and then Ross Detweiler. That's, I think, speaks to the lack of depth the White Sox build and the lack of, I guess, well, part of it's, you know, part of it's lack of depth, part of it's lack of creativity. I think the White Sox have both, and I would like to see them at least dress one of those before the season is over. Next year, if we still are talking about this, the bullseye will be on Chris Getz because this will be his third year running player development. And at some point, you need to start seeing some results of the development front, especially because that depth, the reason why the White Sox are hurting, there's just really no one in AAA right now that you can count on. But next year, they're going to get the kids from Birmingham. Yeah, part of it's the injuries, but also the whole, aside from Mike Rodolfo, who's lost for the year, I mean, the whole outfield situation of Birmingham, not getting maybe one tradable outfielder out of that is a problem. Big problem. All right. Who is next for P.O. Sox? I'll go since I'm standing here. I'm Ron. 
Um, my question is, is there anybody in the minor league system that wasn't picked up on waivers that's healthy that could help the White Sox this year or next? This is a very narrow filter. The white, someone that the White Sox didn't trade for. That they drafted, I assume, and that is healthy. Or sign, yeah, drafted or signed internationally or, yeah. Right. No. I don't think. Not a good yeah. answer. <laughs> no, I'm just going through the, the minor league affiliates in my head. You can, you can watch my, this is you watching my process for what I'm talking to, when I'm Skyping with Josh, but thinking about the recent drafts, thinking about maybe Danny Mendick is one where he gets on, there are guys who can get an audition, I think. Right. Like Nick Magical theoretically could come up. Luis Robert could come up. Yes. And, and they would be, you know, my theory on Magical is he's a guy who can hit 280 anywhere. The question is whether he draws walks or hits enough doubles to where it makes a difference. And I think right now if you brought him to the White Sox, he might hit 280 with a 310 OBP and a 330 slugging. It just might not, you know, there might not be much of an impact behind it, but he hits 280. Yeah, if he gets like a 710 OPS his first year in the base, yeah. you got to be happy. So with I think that. Robert would be that traditional, uh, non-traditional signing, but he did sign through the right. way baseball allowed him to be signed. Mendick is a draft pick who would be, you know, theoretically promotable right now. Zach Collins is somebody who could maybe help in a DH spot if he got enough at bats. I am not, I'm not a fan of his, like when it comes to his approach, but theoretically. But when it comes to bankable guys, not right now, aside from Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal, if you give them like, if you don't expect him to contribute right away, but maybe like by middle of next season, I think those two guys and that's about it. Yeah, after Robert and Madrigal and Kopech, it seems to be a drop off as far as talent, even including Zach Collins, and we'll see how Andrew Vaughn does in Birmingham. Yeah, and that was one of my concerns with this whole rebuild is that, like, people were excited about the White Sox farm system, but you looked at the top ten, and it was all trades and – trades, basically. It was, you know, the Yohan Makata, Michael Kopech, Luis Pasabe, uh, uh, Eloy Jimenez, Dylan Cease. Like, you know, they look at the top ten, and it's like eight were guys who were traded for. And it didn't speak well to who they drafted before – and it didn't necessarily, it, it kind of foreshadowed, I guess, their trouble restocking that once the traded four guys graduate or maybe like the second tier guys like Basabe don't pan out. Who's going to be in their wake? And right now we're seeing that with part of its injuries, but a lot of it's just guys not reaching the next step in Birmingham. Yeah, Carlos Rodon, Carson Fulmer, Zach Collins, Zach Birdie, and Jake Berger. You look at those five draft yeah. picks and the White Sox got six plus war from Carlos Rodon because of injuries. And then we have big question marks with the other four guys. Yeah. And if Fulmer, like none of those guys are huge disappointments in isolation, like Fulmer being eighth overall pick. It was a weak draft for pitching. There, there are a lot of, uh, you know, Walker Bueller drafted behind him. Everybody points to him, but a lot of pitchers were drafted before and right after him didn't pan out. So, you know, Carson Fulmer not working out, meh. Zach Collins being, you know, not a great catcher, not a great hitter, 10th you know, overall pick. Yeah. Jake Berg getting hurt, you know, like all these individually, if you assess them without looking at the context, they're all, you know, what happens in the first round of the Major League Baseball draft. But year after year, it does take its toll. Excellent question. Who is next? Hey, guys. Great show. Um, let's talk about the minor league player that could cause maybe the biggest... Uh, offensive impact, and that's Yerman Mercedes. <laughs> what do you do with a guy like that who's got – it's not just a home park thing. I, I was cheating. I looked at his splits. His away splits are good, too. He's hitting the ball really well. Over 900 OPS, but 
He's a catcher shrug? Like, what are you, are you going to bring him up to DH? Is there any future for him in Chicago? I don't, like, he's he's basically Zach Collins a little bit. I think Collins is more of a polished receiver. Mercedes is rougher. The problem with Mercedes is he's like a fire plug of a guy. Five, he's listed to 5'11". I think he's shorter than that. He's thicker than, like, he, he's not like a long 5'11". He's a, he's a short, thick 5'11". And it's, so he can't really play first base. He's not a big target at first base. And Andrew Vaughn is already a, a sub six foot target at first base. So you don't want to get carried away with that. But when it comes to like the hitting, I've been paying attention to him. When the White Sox uh, uh, basically got him for nothing from Baltimore system, they showed a footage of him doing this massive bat flip in a Dominican summer league game. I was like, okay, I'm interested because he played with some character and like playing, watching him play in Winston Salem, where he where he hit well there. Uh, he plays with like a lot of personality, a lot of character, a lot of emotion. It's fun to watch him. It just the receiving is really rough. And I think if Zach Collins weren't there and you could try in in September, I'm guessing September is going to be devoted to Zach Collins, trying to get him starts behind the plate, starts at DH try to get him regular play that he didn't get the first time around, see how far away he is. Unless you, like, forsake the DH and, and, and let James McCann take the entire month of September off, I don't know how you get two of those guys playing time, but I don't want to see the White Sox give up on them because I think with the way benches are going to change, with the way pitchers are being used, I think there's a way to use a third catcher type like Collins or Mercedes. And I, I enjoy watching Mercedes play. He's just fun to watch. He makes you laugh, like, a lot. For good reasons and bad, like I saw him get like a foul tip in the groin, and he's rolling around, <laughs> like around, like really, like I, I, like I felt his pain, but I also hadn't seen a catcher. Usually, see the catcher take one knee, head down, the umpire pats him on the back, dusts out the plate. He was going full like football in the groin, Simpson style, George C. Scott rolling back and forth for an Oscar. That's what I would like. I enjoy watching him play, so I'd like to see him get in the mix, but with Zach Collins there, unless, you know, they, they give Zach Collins September off or give him all the starts at catcher and then let, you know, Mercedes get in there. With Zavala there, he was so many catchers on the 40-man roster, I just don't know how he fits in right now, but I don't want to see the – I'd like to see the White Sox give him a month, somewhere along the line, whether it's September or April or May, something. I say use your Mercedes like the Astros used Evan Gaddis. Well, just make yeah. him a DH. That's what I thought Zach Collins was for, though. That's, yeah. yeah. The White Sox still have hope for Zach Collins to be either a catcher or a first baseman. I guess he's playing more first base now after being sent down to Charlotte. Yeah, I think Sebi Zavala is the guy whose days are numbered. That's uh, unfortunate. I was rooting for Sebi. Yeah, it's just he hasn't hit it all in AAA, and everybody's hitting a AAA. So I think when you have well, – I think Castillo, Castillo's out of the year, so it's McCann – Collins, and then you have third catcher room, but I don't know if Zavala's the guy they bank on for that third catcher spot if they have more interesting guys. Good point. The White Sox can have a DH platoon, AJ Reed and Yerman Mercedes for the month of September. Yeah, I guess, you know, Reed is just, I have no idea about him. I could see him being out of the mix like by September 10th. <laughs> we shall see. But yeah. great question about Yerman Mercedes. Uh, we still have time for a couple more questions if anybody wants to ask one. Brian Hoffman Estates, um, going off of that last question, who are we going to see in September? You're in Mercedes, part of that group? I don't know about Mercedes. Yeah, I think it's hard to carry more than three catchers in September. So if they, uh, Castillo, I can see them saying, like they did with Derek Holland, just say, like in September, like, we don't have plans for you. We need the roster spot. Um, you know, it was a weird two years. You know, good luck in the future. <laughs> Uh, so I can see them maybe if they have Zavala on, their, on the roster and they want to see Mercedes, I can maybe see that happening. 
But right now, I think a lot with Danny Mendick is, you know, Danny Mendick somebody who needs to be added to the 40-man roster or be exposed to the Rule 5 draft. He could be somebody like, uh, was it Richie Martin in Toronto? Or uh, he was the Oakland pick who was taken yeah. kind of in a similar spot where he's proven that he can hit AAA well enough to get an audition. If a team desperately needs a second baseman, third baseman, shortstop, backup for all those positions, I could see him getting a shot. So if he needs to be added to it, I could see him going. We saw Jimmy Cordero. like He's going to be my September guy, Jimmy Cordero, but he just got called up, so he's one of them. But I think with the way the 40-man roster is and with some of the guys who might be need to be protected, like Blake Rutherford, he won't be part of it. Uh, Dane no. Dunning is hurt for the year. So, like, the guys who would have not needed to be protected, I don't think are moving the needle enough. So I could see it being a pretty quiet September, maybe Mendick, uh, especially if Jose Rondon is out. I think Mendick and Rondon are competing for the same spot in the 25-man roster or 40-man uh, depth chart ultimately. But otherwise, yeah, it's going to be mostly, I think, devoted to the young guys like Jimenez, Anderson, Makata, getting all the young guys they're banking on for next year playing time. And then A.J. Reed, too, is somebody, I think, given all the first baseman in the system, you know, all of a sudden the White Sox became really deep in first baseman, like within the last two months. And I think with Gavin Sheets right behind Reed and Andrew Vaughn behind him and Mercedes and Collins and all these guys, I think A.J. Reed is probably going to be like a premature September call-off. Well, I mean, isn't he... AJ Reed just gonna stick with the team until September? Well, I mean, but yeah, I mean, like, but he's like a guy who would ordinarily get September call oh, up, like at bats. But he's basically like a September call up in mid July. Yeah, I want to say Luis Robert, and I hope that he does get called up by September. He won't. But he won't, as the audience says. It breaks my heart, though. I wanted my bold prediction before the season to be right. It was a good, bold prediction, too. Uh, yeah, so I think if it. he does challenge thirty-five homers, I don't know how they keep him down like I don't like <laughs> yeah I don't know I mean what I don't know what excuse Rick Hahn's gonna have yeah let's not talk about injuries <laughs> uh, yeah anyone else got a question all right um, pitching is not exactly a strong suit how about Hector what? Santiago Hector Santiago is a guy I thought was going to be called up after Detweiler and Covey and everything like that. They seem right now to be, you know, more or less rotating between the two based on matchups or who's the hotter hand. But Santiago, I could see him being part of the mix. I think right now the 40-man roster is full. Uh, and they've been shifting guys to uh, the 60-day DL. And I think they'd like to avoid Santiago just because of the roster spot he needs and who needs to come off. And, I mean, Ryan Goins coming up, he's you know, not much of a better use. He's kind of in the, he's like the Hector Santiago position players. Like 30-something can help more than the guys than who are already there, but is he part of the future? Not really. But uh, I, I think they waited. You know, Goins has been hitting all year. They waited for him just because uh, they had guys audition. I think with pitchers, you know, maybe if Detweiler goes and they reach the end with him, maybe they cut him and call up Santiago and it's the same journeyman, 30-something left-handed pitcher who's going to take that spot and there's no ultimate harm. But I think it's going to take cutting Detweiler to call up Santiago. I, I'm with you. I thought Hector Santiago would have been up by now. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah, maybe I think, in August. I think they had to stretch him out when they first got him, but now he's throwing routinely 100 innings and or 100 pitches and five innings a start. So I think he's more or less ready for when they decide to try their next uh, 4A starter. Who would you prefer to start a game, Hector Santiago or Ross Detweiler? Santiago. 
he's earned enough goodwill to give him a third shot. Matt Harvey. Yes. I would just for the change of scenery slash... Interest? Tra- interest slash name brand appeal slash fun thing to write about, especially if it blows up and becomes high maintenance. I mean, partly I'm not, I'm not a completely uh, impartial third party. I enjoy a good mess. It's fun to untangle. Like, you know, Adam LaRoche thing was an embarrassment. Chris Dale thing was an embarrassment, but great for traffic. And I didn't have to make anything up. I just had to react genuinely to it. So anything that's great for that, like it plays into my natural reaction to not get carried away, but still sounds like I'm getting completely carried away with what I'm saying in my reaction is probably the best possible thing for business. So I'm all in on Matt Harvey. Right, so for a business decision, Matt Harvey. Yes. The thing about Matt Harvey, I think, is the big takeaway is the not the Tommy John surgery, but the thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, it seems to be the, the killer for pitchers right now. Having to take out the rib, pitchers are just not recovering from that surgery. Yeah, and the White Sox, I think, have lost most of the benefit of the doubts with uh, you know rehabbing pitchers and thinking that they can get them healthy. I don't think they're any worse than – they're not like Mets bad with – uh, how much they make problems worse or expose pitchers to to getting hurt, but I think that enough time has passed, enough you know innings have been lost to guys getting hurt and not getting back in a correct timeline that I can see just not giving them any benefits out and treating like the White Sox signing Matt Harvey as like say a team you don't think about, like the Blue Jays signing Matt Harvey, like just okay, you know worth the lottery sure. ticket, but not expecting a comeback, and I think that's how kind of. With future rehabilitation projects and with guys who were once great and haven't found it, I don't think you can count count on them finding it with the White Sox, at least until you start seeing results again. We have time for one more question. So who would like to ask it? Thanks, Josh and Jim, for organizing this event today. Woo! (laughs) Thank you for coming. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. This is uh, David Crosby, not the singing David Crosby of Naperville, Illinois. (laughs) (laughs) What, what are the uh, things you find most encouraging about the 2019 Sox and the most frustrating? Great question. Good way to end it. Well, let's go back and forth encouraging and discouraging. I'll say encouraging first. I think the obviously is Lucas Giolito. Uh, I agree. Turning, like, I don't think he's necessarily a Chris Sale replacement like an ace, but to see him turn in an ace like month, month and a half, that's that's at least like a number two pitcher, and that's great. The White Sox can use a whole rotation of number twos. Terrific. Uh, bang on that. Also, Yohan Mankata, like yep. I, I'd long, yeah, I'd, we'd talked about before that if he could cut his strikeout rate to like say twenty eight percent, cool. Like yeah, I think yeah, I don't think he needs to sacrifice a whole lot to get to twenty eight percent. Just need to learn pitchers a little bit better, learn to strike sound a little bit better. Attack the fringes a little bit more than he did. He could cut it down and wouldn't lose any power. Wouldn't turn into like a Nick Magical choking up, poking the ball the other way thing. He could still do damage, and we're seeing that right now. I said I think those are the two cornerstones you wanted to see from the White Sox. You know those trades and Eloy Jimenez having you know uneven year, but I think when he hits the ball hard and when he's like laying off sliders and taking walks, I think he's on the right track. I agree with that. I think Tim Anderson making a step forward from the 2018 season. He's come a long way since the 2017 season. I think on the frustrating point, number one is Ronaldo Lopez, unfortunately taking a step back. He's had good back-to-back starts against Oakland and Tampa, 
but clearly he needs some work in the offseason. Even with his pitches that we're seeing at StatCast, the fastball velocity is one of the best in all of Major League Baseball, but it's got no spin. It's a flat pitch. He's in the 7th percentile for his curveball. He may need to find a new grip for his breaking pitches. There's a lot of work that Ronaldo Lopez needs to do. But I, I think outside of Ronaldo Lopez from a player standpoint, the most frustrating thing, and this is something we keep talking about, Jim, is the front office. Looking at San Diego, they are now calling up their top prospects. They are calling up more John, the pitcher, Luis Urias, the second baseman. They seem to be not afraid of the service time because A.J. Preller is trying to learn as much as he possibly can on what he has in-house before trying to turn this corner and go after the Los Angeles Dodgers in the National League West. I think this is a really smart move by him, throwing these kids into the fire and having a better understanding because now he knows that he has ownership backup to go get the Manny Machados or the Eric Hosmers, even though I didn't like that signing. Like Right now, I think San Diego is a clear top landing spot for Garrett Cole. I have more confidence in the Padres getting Garrett Cole than the Chicago White Sox, even though that is someone that the White Sox need to get. And I'm still frustrated with Rick Hahn because I don't understand why he's not doing the same thing as A.J. Preller. Why not call up Luis Robert? If he struggles two weeks, fine. You can send him back to Charlotte to continue work. If you're not liking the output of uh, Yomer Sanchez, call up Nick Madrigal and give him up two weeks. It just seems that other teams around Major League Baseball are finding different ways to play with service time, giving these top prospects auditions, learning from their limited playing time. But the White Sox are still stuck to their plan because, hey, this is the plan that we drew up in 2016 and we're not going to deviate from it. Yeah, I think when I was thinking about you know disappointments, you more or less described, yeah, I was thinking about symptoms and you were thinking about the cause. Like I was thinking like right field, Rotating between Charlie Tilson and Ryan Cordell, nothing working out there. No, nobody challenging. Like I was hope I had big expectations for Luis Basabe. Fortunately, he broke his hammy bone in right. spring training. Couple leg injuries since hasn't been able to mount a threat. I thought he might be up like a mid-season call-up candidate because he's already using minor league options and they may as well evaluate him. Hasn't been able to add to it. Like going between Dylan Covey and Ross Detweiler and like the whole back in the rotation bottoming out and not having anybody more interesting than Dylan Covey be a, a problem solver, that's, you know, that's a big disappointment. I think just the lack of options and interesting names. <laughs> like Adam Engel coming back. You know, he, Adam Engel does some things really well. Runs fast, plays a good center field. If the White Sox were competing for a postseason spot or if they were playing in October, use him like Terrence Gore coming off the bench, being a, a, a lockdown center fielder. He's got a major league future. It's not like a major league future if somebody who needs to, uh, like is in the lineup five days a week, but it's like there's a way to, for him to contribute to a major league team, but for him to be in front of Luis Robert as a potential, or as a, as a midsummer addition and hoping that this is the time he hits 250 and gets on base at a 310 clip, I just, you know, it's, it's irritating. <laughs> and uh, it, it suggests a lack of progress, and it's easy to come down the rebuild, even though, like, Michael Kopech coming back, sure, Dane Dunning coming back. Yeah, there, there are enough new faces in the mix next year to be encouraged, but, you know, when you have this kind of rebuilding year where it's not quite clicking and you have a lot of audition spots, do not go nuts with auditions. And that's why I like the A.J. Reid thing. I'm not quite sure how he fits, but I like that he's here. I like that, you know, he's just a new face. He's got some pedigree. Let him take some at-bats, see if anything clicks and, you know, 
should he, they get like the random one out of 100 chance that he turns into an above average major league player, great. If not, they didn't lose, the, you know, who are they going to give those at bats to? Like nobody, like Daniel Polka, probably he's, you know, he's, his best days are probably behind him. Right. So I think that's the case where they, they did that with first base DH and they have some guys there, but so many other spots, starting pitcher, uh, even in the bullpen, you know, losing Hamilton and Birdie and like, you know, all the high octane guys you thought you might see in the late innings have materialized. That hurts too. So I think they're just so many roster spots that haven't found, you know, haven't had enough interesting auditions. Yeah, I, I might see that they weren't solved by the end of the year, and that'd be acceptable. It's just not even worth giving a good look and thought to is what's, uh, I think, the biggest loss of the season. I think Rick Hahn needs to deviate from his plan. I, I think it's time to call up Luis Robert because every Ryan Cordell zero for four game we're going to be watching going into August while we're watching Luis Robert put up highlights in Charlotte. White Sox fans are going to ask, what are we doing here? Yeah, and I think they've spread out the, you know, they, I think they wanted to avoid a Kansas City Royals-like situation where everybody hits free agency at the same time. And I can see that being the case when you have Lopez and Moncada and Kopech and everything like that. Just, you know, wanting to spread out the, the hurt because the uh, Royals, you know, they got to the World Series and they won it. And then the team kind of fell apart. They had like a two to three year window and then they had to make hard decisions and Alex Gordon didn't make the, the decision they made pay off. And I think they want to do that early on, but right now they've scattered their biggest paydays from 2023 or the, the free agency arrival dates from 2023 to 2026. And I think that's enough time for the White Sox to, if they get good, if this rebuild works, they should be a monster. You know, they should be able to carry $150 million payrolls. They should be able to decide who they want right. to keep. So I think, you know, if we're th thinking about 2023, I think the White Sox tend to approach 2023 like they have a 2019 payroll where they're, you know, if they spend, uh, you know, $100, you know, $100 million, they're like, whoa, you know, <laughs> this, is a, this is a big year. But should 2022 roll around, they made the postseason, they have a bunch of guys who are selling jerseys and, uh, you know, being in ads and just, you know, drawing to the park. They should be in a whole completely different revenue tier and a spending tier to where they're old. Yeah, I guess paradigm of value, valuing players and deciding who to keep shouldn't really apply anymore. And they should be spending like a Houston or a, uh, you know, maybe not Boston, but probably Houston is probably the among American League teams, probably the one to emulate. So interesting for a GM to have such confidence that he'll be around in the 2023 season must be great working for Jerry Ryan. That's yeah. I mean, that is a big problem. <laughs> AJ Preller, I think spends because if it doesn't work out, he's not going to be the one to inherit the problem. You can no. get a job with some other team. You'll be their scouting director, international director, and still have a living in baseball. And I think the white Sox could use some of that desperation. Like where, Oh, you know, Manny Machado would have been a nice choice. If Manny Machado you know, doesn't click, uh, that's not going to be my, that's a problem for tomorrow guy. That's a problem for 2022 guy, not 2019 guy. Right. And I think given how much they've scattered the big paydays and the free agency dates, they can't afford to not think about the future so much as long as, you know, they're not spending like saying a 34 year old, but if they're spending on like a peak free agent or, uh, you, you know, or in the case of Robert calling him up when he's going to be a free agent in his prime, they can afford to keep that or afford to consider it all their options. Great question for Rick Hahn is how do you determine to go from planning for the future to now planning for the present? 
Yeah. I think that's a question that he needs to answer after this season is over. And it's also, I think, a question for ownership if it happens to be the case where the slow play rebuild and not adding to revenue or not adding to the payroll is really, maybe it's really great for the bottom line. You're having this attendance creep happen while they're still not spending on the roster. Maybe it's just great for profits and great for, uh, you know, say if they're thinking about selling a team or building up value, I think that probably helps, you know, their books. And so maybe that's the case too where, uh, you know, they have to get ownership on board and sell them more on the idea of pushing it and getting fans into the uh, stadium at postseason rates a year earlier than they thought. Well, that will do it for this P.O. Sox. Thank you guys so much for our live audience. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to the fine folks at Alter Brewery here in Downers Grove, Illinois. And uh, we're going to have to do this again, Jim. I thought this was a big hit. Yes, and now we'll see if uh, you know people listen to this Alter Brewing and maybe other establishment owners and say, we have to get in on that. So yes. thank you for it. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of noise. <laughs> You hear that? Potential businesses interested in supporting Sox Machine? I think you do. Yeah, there you go. So if you are a brewery owner that so happens to be listening to this, my email is josh at soxmachine.com. Jim's is jim at soxmachine.com. Reach out to us. We'll love to host an event there, especially even before the end of this season or definitely next season in 2021. Hopefully, knock on wood. The White Sox are good. But thank you guys so much for coming out, and thank you for listening to this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. I want to thank our guest, Dan Zaborski, for Fangraphs.com for being on the show. And if you just discovered the podcast, you can listen to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Audioboom.com, slash Sox Machine. And you can help support the site and the show by becoming a friend of the podcast and site at Patreon.com, slash Sox Machine. A lot of Patreon supporters came out to our live event. They got some pretty awesome koozies, I think. So we got some, uh, we got some new Sox Machine swag. We even had some pint glasses and T-shirts to pass out. So if you enjoy our work and you like what we do and you want more from us, go to Patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis and our wonderful audience at Alter Brewery, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man. That's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.